I've found throughout the years that some uh, Christians don't really enjoy studying the Old Testament. Um, I don't know necessarily why that is. Um, they'll gravitate to the Psalms because they're reassuring and comforting. But uh, sometimes I find that people think the Old Testament's a little bit outdated or, or maybe they're hesitant because it's mostly about Israel and not about us. Whatever the case may be, when we study the Old Testament, uh, even though much of it is about Israel, we can learn so much about the character of God and we can learn about the character and the tendencies of mankind. And what we see in the Old Testament points so much, as I referred to in the communion time, it points to what God fulfills in the New Testament. And we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for correction and teaching and training of righteousness and instruction. But we will definitely know when the Old Testament is applicable to us when it conforms to the New Testament. While there are some instructions and some promises that are specifically to Israel and some even that have yet to be fulfilled with Israel, on the whole, the message of the, New, uh, the Old Testament is the exact same as the message of the New Testament because the Bible is consistent. So there are five really main things that, that the Bible teaches. One is that man loves to sin. Second is that because of his sin, man can't save himself. Third is that God is holy and perfect. The fourth is that God is a loving and gracious God. And as we just celebrated, fifth is that God offers salvation to those who trust in him. Everything in scripture revolves around those five truths. So when we study the Old Testament, we see the same concepts there that are in the New Testament, and they really reinforce what the New Testament teaches by showing us examples and giving us instruction. Now, all that means, I hope you're not completely confused at this point, what that means is that in the case of a passage like we're going to look at this morning, one that is directed specifically to Israel as they wander in the wilderness uh, about to go into the promised land, the truth that is here is still applicable to us, literally and metaphorically. Now, Moses is speaking to Israel as they are getting ready to go into the promised land. These are God's people. They're the nation that God has put his favor on. And Moses, as their leader, who knows their tendencies and knows their inclinations, is striving to give the people instruction before he dies and to, to get their hearts right before they go into the promised land. And we've studied that Israel had some problems. Their biggest problem was rebellion against God. They just simply really didn't want to do what God wanted. And they were resistant to his commandments. When God gave them the law, they negotiated it and they tried to, to nuance it and dance around it. And, and that never worked. And there was all kinds of problems and discipline as they wandered in the wilderness. And then they also were kind of restless in their faith. They didn't always want to trust God. They didn't uh, put their confidence in him that the way that they should. They're, they're always trying to kind of finesse the situation and do what they want and get their way. And at the same time, they're enjoying the perks of God's blessing, if we can put it that way. That's not too crass. The, the benefits of God's blessing, they're enjoying that. They're enjoying the fact that they're his people, that his name is on the nation and, and that they have his presence. And yet they don't want to do what he wants them to do. They rarely asked how they could please him. They really thought of how they could please him. And if they had asked the question, they really wouldn't have wanted to hear the answer. But that didn't mean that the Lord's going to let it slide. 
It didn't mean that God was just going to say, oh, well, you don't really want to obey me and I'm a holy God and I have commandments, but but that's okay. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. We'll just do whatever. God doesn't let it slide. In fact, there's no mistaking in this passage we're going to read about what he is asking. There's no mistaking about what he wants from his children, what he expects from his children, and he makes it abundantly clear if you look starting in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Look just at the first line. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does God require of you? What does God require of me? What a great question for our age. Question that's not really being asked. In Christianity, we tend to kind of establish what we think is fair and what's right and what's acceptable in culture, rather than saying, what does God require of us? And many of the assumptions that we've made, many of the actual answers that we've been providing within Christianity are really an anemic representation of what is going to be said in the next sentence that we'll look at in a minute. And I wondered, as I studied this passage, if we went to the the leaders of the largest churches in America or the ones that are the best-selling authors or those that are blogging or twittering or whatever people do these days and and all their followers or we went to the leaders of the latest and coolest movements in christianity and all the hot trends and we put this question before them would we get anything close to the words that jesus is going to say in verse 12 see in a lot of cases there is either a nervousness to be honest because it won't be accepted by the culture and won't seem relevant to the culture, or there is an actual reticence and hesitation to accept what God says. But even more than what leaders would say, the the real question is, what would the average Christian say? What would you and I say? If we ask the question, what does the Lord require of us? What does God ask of us? Would we know what to say? Would we know what he says? And would we be honest to say, this is how I'm supposed to live? So let's look at what he says is required of his children. Keep reading. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in his way, all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and the statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. Take that apart just for a minute. To fear the Lord means to revere and to be afraid of Him. Not in the, oh, I I can't even look at Him, but to be in awe of His power and His holiness and His greatness. To walk in His ways literally means to live for Him. We know what it means to love. To serve Him with all your heart and soul. The word literally means to labor, to do work, to keep His commandments means to guard and to yield to His commandments. So let's summarize it. We're called to be in awe of Him, to live completely for Him, to love Him, to work hard for Him, and to guard His Word and His commandments. How many think that if we asked what the average Christian is supposed to look like and what the Lord requires of us, that we would get that answer? The problem is, that that's what the Lord tells us He wants. Anything short of this really is insufficient. It's it's short of what God requires of His people. And I know that's a 
a hard word on a July morning in 2012. But this is what God asks of his children. And he doesn't say this because he's harsh and strict and because he's restrictive and because he wants to push us down and, and wants us to lack joy. Notice at the end of verse 13 that it says that these things are given for our good. In other words, God says, this may seem punitive to you, it may seem harsh, and it may not seem popular, but I'm telling you, as God, who knows all things, that this is the most beneficial way that you can live. And in that, it proves your love for me. Now, what is the most sincere and reassuring and truthful way to prove that you love somebody? All throughout the Bible, we're told, from John 3.16 to 1 Corinthians 13 to Ephesians 5, that the greatest way to show love for somebody is to sacrifice yourself for them and to them. And the two greatest ways we can prove that we're sacrificing to somebody is to trust them and to submit to them. If you want to love your spouse, you will trust them and you will submit to them, men and women. Kids, if you want to show love for your parents, you will trust them and you will submit to them. That's what the Lord says here. If you drop down to chapter 11, verse 1, uh, when he says, this is what's going to prove that you really are doing what I require of you. He says, you will love the Lord, your God. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not even ideal. As a believer, it's the only option. You will Love the Lord your God. Now, Israel had a love problem. Israel had a problem with sacrificing. Israel had a problem with trust, which is why God keeps bringing them back to it and why he says, as you go into the land that I'm about to give you, I've pulled you out of bondage. I've led you here. You've disobeyed me. I've been patient. I've been kind. I've been forgiving. I've been gracious. As you get there, now listen to Moses because he's telling you what's required. He's telling you that it's time to stop monkeying around. It's time to stop playing around. It's time for you to do what I'm asking of you. And by doing that, you will show that you love me. Now, because as humans, we always need some kind of motivation. I needed motivation to get out of bed this morning when the alarm went off five times. I need motivation to go to work tomorrow. I need motivation to do a lot of things. You do too. So we need motivation. So why should we do this? What's the impetus for us to love the Lord? Well, first of all, we love Him because He first loved us. Long before we had any interest or any desire for what God would do for us, it says that God loved us. The second reason is that He's done so much for us. Israel gets a long list. If you look back at chapter 10, just skim verses 15 to 22, or you can go into chapter 11 and skim verses 2 to 12. He says, you've seen all this. In fact, he reminds them in chapter 11, verse 2, it's not like I'm talking to people that weren't eyewitnesses. You saw what I've done. You were there. So I've proven that I love you, and I've proven that I have done so much for you. Those two reasons alone should be a, enough reason for us to love him back. But our feelings fluctuate and our desire tends to wander and our remembrance and our gratitude can be inconsistent, sometimes uh, intentionally. Sometimes we don't feel like being grateful. Sometimes we get a little bit full of sin and we don't want to thank God and we don't want to follow God. So the Lord says, well, let me give you a third reason. 
I've loved you more than you can ever imagine. I've done things far beyond your expectation. I've taken care of you. I've provided for you. I've been among you. I've done it all. But in case that's not enough, let me give you a third inescapable reason. By trusting in me, you have willingly placed yourself under my lordship. By trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer this morning, if you took communion and you were grateful and you were remembering the work that God has done in redeeming you from sin, and you declare this morning that you're a Christian and that you love the Lord and that you're serving the Lord, if that's you this morning, then you have voluntarily placed yourself under His Lordship. We are His people and His children and we are His servants. God doesn't emphasize that one as much as He could because He's so determined to prove his love and to show that he uh, takes care of us and that he doesn't ask what he could of us. But we are his servants. And by the value of that position, he then is our Lord. The highest name for God is the name Lord. This word is almost unpronounceable. When the Masoretes uh, interpreted the text and and, uh, wrote down the Bible, they were so hesitant to even write this word down Because they were so in awe of it. The word Lord, it's Yahweh, Adonai. It means everything that's above everything. You can't even pronounce it since it's so great. He is our Lord. The word literally means master and owner. He has all the authority, all the power, all the strength, and all the right to be our Lord. Everything and everyone is completely inadequate before the Lord. Don't just talk about God. Well, I I follow God. A lot of people use such a generic term, and God can be anything in culture now, right? Whose God is it? Which God are you worshiping? And everybody, well, all the gods are the same. No, they're not. But when you say, He's my Lord, oh, you distinguish it away from everything else. He's the one who's above all. There's no other name like him. There's no other God like him. Everything else pales in comparison to him. He is Lord. And it's also a statement of position. If he's Lord, then I'm servant. If he's Lord, then I'm not. Now, to emphasize this and to make sure that it's completely unmistakable, look how many times in your text, we learned this in the Bible study methods class, Look how many times between chapter 10, verse 12, and chapter 11, verse 28, how many times the word Lord is used. It's used four times in 12 and 13. It's used another six times in verses 14 to 22. It's used 10 times in verses 1 to 17. And it's used two times in verses 11, uh, excuse me, verses 26 to 28. But just in case anybody missed the point, of what he was saying, the personal pronouns, he and him, are used 30 times in the span of 28 verses, 14 times in verses 1 to 7 alone. And look how they're used. In the first section of verse 1, he establishes his authority, his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments. In the middle, verses 2 and 3, he reminds them of his attributes, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs and his works. In verses 4 to 6, he talks about his actions of deliverance, his works 
that he did in the midst of Egypt, what he did to Egypt's army when he made the waters of the Red Sea to engulf them, and what he did to you in the wilderness when you came to this place, and what he did to your enemies. Now you say, that's great, Paul, nice English lesson, but why does it matter? Why is it so important to count how many times that God refers to himself, and what does it have to do with my life and your life in July of 2012? Well, Israel not only needed to see that God was their help and their salvation, they also needed to see that he was their Lord. Because they love the help and salvation part. Oh, Lord, you got us out of Egypt. And oh, Lord, the plagues. And oh, Lord, the Red Sea. And oh, Lord, the water. And the manna. And the quail. And everything else. And now you're taking us to the promised land. Lord, don't ask anything of us. Just keep moving us forward. God says, you can love my mercy and my salvation. But recognize that if you're under my mercy and salvation, then I'm your Lord. That this is not just a big... Oh, I'm going to give you anything, everything, and ask nothing. I'm going to ask everything. You take everything from me, I'm going to ask everything of you. You cannot accept God's love and mercy and help and deliverance. Listen now, unless you are also willing to accept His authority and His position as your Lord. You can't say, well, Lord, give me all the forgiveness and all the grace and cover me and take me to heaven. And oh, I'm so glad I can do uh, that. I can be saved forever. But now I'm going to do what I want. It doesn't work that way. If he's your savior, he's your Lord. And that's what defines the difference between just accepting God's grace and kind of managing our sin and putting on the persona of a believer versus really living as we're called to live in a way that honors Christ and models his life. It is all dependent on whether we're under his lordship. We can love God's forgiveness and we should and we can love the fact that he helps us and we should and we can claim Jesus as Lord. But the question is, are you really living for and serving him as Lord every moment of every day? I recently read a quote by a seminary professor who was speaking to pastors about the need for true discipleship in the church. And he put the issue in very blunt but very necessary terms. It's a long little paragraph, but I really want you to hear it. He says, we tend to produce members who support the church instead of disciples who impact the world. During 30 years of ministry, I observed that most pastors settle for appropriate behaviors and a zealous spirit on the part of their members. Much of the time, I did the same. If members regularly attended church activities and accepted its basic doctrines and served in ministry and didn't create waves, I felt satisfied. If they also tithed, contributed to missions, attended prayer meetings, and occasionally witnessed or invited people to church, I practically jumped for joy. Yet believers can do all of these and still live self-centeredly. They can endure miserable marriages, display unchristlike behavior at church, and irritate their neighbors and co-workers while making little difference for the kingdom of God. Too often, we equate compliance and zeal with maturity. Compliance may be external without transformation, and zeal simply human enthusiasm instead of deep conviction. Even when genuine, zeal without maturity fails to produce the fruit that it could. We can't settle for less than continuing growth through mature and fruitful discipleship. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is 
that we can feel a little self-satisfied that we say the right words and do the right things. But if we're still living self-centeredly, if we're still saying, well, I'm glad I'm forgiven, but I still get to own my life, rather than the Lord being the owner of our life, then we're really not mature believers and we're fooling ourselves to think that we are. What's the difference? How does your life look markedly different from what it was before Christ? How does it look markedly different from what it was a year ago? As believers, if you've been saved a long time, I have. That, that's a tough differentiation. How do I look different than I did in 2011? And what's 2013 going to look like? What's the change? What's the distinction? What's the differentiation between you and the world? Because it shouldn't just be a little bit. It should be dramatic. Not because we're trying to show off, but because that's what living under His Lordship does. See, God's about to change Israel's environment. He's about to move them to a different place. But this is not just about getting them out of a bad situation in Egypt and moving them to a better place in Canaan. This is not just moving on up and and getting a nicer spread so they can live a little bit better. This is about a change that He expects in them, the way that they will think, the way that they will live. And here's the fascinating part about the passage. He says, the land itself, the land you're going to go in that I've prepared for you, will give you the evidence of how you're living. The land, what happens with the weather, what happens with the land, will show the state of your heart. Interesting section. Look over chapter 11 and verse 10 to 12. This is where God says, this land, look at it, isn't like Egypt where you sowed seed and watered it with your foot like a vegetable garden. The land in which you're about to cross to possess, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven. A land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. The Lord is saying there's a huge difference between where you were and where you're going to be. And it will show in how I work. Now this is not a section that tells us that the Lord is greatly interested in real estate. That He loves certain pieces of ground. He is saying, I'm interested in that land because that's the land I'm preparing for my people. You aren't there yet. You're on your way. But I've already been watering it. I've been making it fruitful. I've been getting it ready for my people. And I haven't taken my eyes off of it for one minute. I've done all of that without any uh, conditions from you. You've done nothing to deserve it. You didn't ask for it. You didn't earn it. You don't own it. I'm going to give it to you. And I've gone through a lot of effort to give it to you. And I've showed a lot of mercy and a lot of patience to get you there. Now, by doing this, listen carefully now, God showed his ownership and his authority over all things because he had to get them out of slavery in Egypt. 
He had to sustain them and forgive them and put up with their chronic dissatisfaction in the wilderness. And then he had to drive out the people that were already occupying the land. But this was the land that he was giving to them and he had done everything to this point. Now the parallels between the promised land and what God did and salvation through Christ and even the promise of heaven are abundantly clear. All of us at one point have been in spiritual bondage. We've been unable to free ourselves. We haven't even looked to God for deliverance. We can do nothing to earn salvation. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't obtain it. And yet through Christ, God offers salvation to us. And he's gone through a lot of effort to show a lot of mercy and a lot of patience to deliver us and get us to heaven. And in doing that, he has shown his ownership and authority over all things, including sin and death and the devil. And he's delivered us from slavery to sin. He's forgiven us and sustained us even when we haven't trusted him, even when we've turned our backs on him. And he's already defeated and overcome the enemies that are in front of us. The exact same thing he did in pulling them out of Egypt and getting them to the promised land is the same thing he's done through Christ. That's why this table is a picture of the Passover. I'll do it all. I'll deliver you. I'll bring you out. I'll provide. I'll move the enemies out. I'll make you free. I will do it all. So what he tells Israel next because that's such a parallel to Christ, what he tells Israel next applies to us metaphorically as a basic spiritual principle. The Lord doesn't stop and say, all right, I've done it all. Just enjoy. Knock yourselves out. Have fun. It's a great land. Got it all ready for you. I'm just going to sit back and watch. You guys do whatever you want. He says, nope. Now, once you get there, Once you get there, there is a condition for my continued blessing. I've already done it all. I've provided. I've given you salvation. I've gotten you out. I've taken you to a place of rest and peace and blessing. But for that to continue, for you to continue to be blessed, there's a condition. Start reading in verse 13. It shall come about. If you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, here it is again, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. If is the word there in verse 13. Then that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you don't turn away and serve other gods and worship them or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. Once you get there, once you get to the place where I've prepared and I've given you blessing, there is a condition. I've already watered the land. The rains will keep coming in their season. The early and the late rain, there will be plenty to eat. Those rains will will be there. You'll have food. You'll be satisfied. Your livestock, everything will be great if 
you keep loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But the opposite's also true. If you don't, if you don't keep me as Lord, if you if you do what's contrary to me, if you go and find other gods, if you serve yourself, then I'm going to be angry. And there's not going to be any rain. And the ground won't have any fruit. Even though that's the starting point. When you walk in, it's lush. You're not going to have to do anything. But that's the starting point. If you don't keep serving me, that milk and honey that you see, all the provision and all the, all the promise that I've given you, independent of yourselves, for it to remain that way, for the land to keep drinking of the rain of heaven, you need to continue to have me as your Lord. And the difference between not serving Him and serving Him would be absolutely stark. Let me show you two pictures if you have them back there. The first is Israel in drought. You can see how dry and awful and barren that is. And the second picture is Israel without drought. It's a huge contrast. See, God says, I'm God, I'm Savior, and I'm Lord. I've saved you. That won't change. But if you don't keep me as Lord, if you don't submit to me as Lord, things are going to get dry. It's going to be barren. There's not going to be fruit coming forth. The rain from heaven's not going to nourish the land. I was thinking about this this week as it related to the weather that we've had. My front yard is straw. It hurts my feet to walk on. It's so dry. And it's caused drought and bad farming and an absence of fruit from the land. And I was driving yesterday on a couple errands and I got excited because I looked out to the west and I saw dark clouds and I thought, this is it. We're going to get some rain for the first time in like 12 years. How long has it been? A couple months? A month and a half? A long time. And the clouds, I watched them and they kept coming in and then we got nothing. Not a drop. In fact, we were down in Kenosha the other day and it rained about six drops and Matthew was so excited he got out of the car and stood in the six drops. It's like, rain! There's no rain for the land right now. Now, we as a nation haven't been told that there's a direct parallel to our spiritual state, though I'm guessing there's a sermon in there somewhere. But the spiritual principles for us in this text are still very strong. As we look around at the dry ground and as we think about this passage, ask yourself two questions. The first question is, is the Lord Jesus really Lord of my life? Not just your Savior. I would hope every single person in this room has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that you have recognized that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are all sinners. We are all condemned to spiritual death. But God intervened and He sent Christ to die for our sins and to be our substitute and to take those sins for the cross and to pay for them. And that His resurrection from the dead freed us from sin when we trust in Him. I hope every single person in this room knows that and has trusted in that. But if that's happened, the next question is, have you moved on to maturity? It's not enough for us as believers just to say, well, I'm saved. It's good. 
We have to move on to maturity. He has to be our Lord, and that means full surrender. That means our love for Him is shown by how we live out those requirements from chapter 10. Israel constantly illustrated the huge difference between claiming something that their heart wasn't given to and actually loving and serving the Lord. It's why God keeps telling them this. And it's why Jesus said, there's no greater commandment than I can give to you. There is nothing that supersedes this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And that love should be so deep and so awesome and so full that every other relationship that you have seems completely unimportant and undesirable because you love me so much. Why does God tell us that? Because when we love Him, He is Lord of our lives. Then the second thing we have to do and we're done is to continually assess the condition of the land. Like the farmer looking at his crops this morning and shaking his head and going, it's just not happening. To the economist who looks at the numbers each month and shakes his head and says, it's just not happening. To pastors that look out of their congregation and don't see any fruit, praise the Lord, that's not true here. But, but they look out and they see any fruit, they don't see any fruit, and they say, it's just not happening. As we do, every single one of us should be examining our own lives to see whether there is fruit and whether that fruit is growing in abundance. Because there will never be a great yield of fruit where there is a lack of rain. So the measure of our spiritual fruit in our life and in our church will be directly proportional to how much we are drinking water from the rain of heaven. I love that phrase. That phrase has stuck with me all week. Drinking water from the rain of heaven. It is both wonderful and challenging at the same time. What water are you drinking spiritually this morning? Because there are so many options. We were talking to our kids last night about what it was like to live in the dark ages known as the 70s. Where all the restaurants that we go to now didn't exist. They're like, what? And we said, you know, even, even fast food wasn't as abundant as now. And, and we just ate basic meals. And, and, and we're like, you know, you didn't serve fajitas at home that you didn't think about it. You had meat potatoes and vegetables and you didn't have bottled water and you didn't have 80 kinds of soda and you didn't have vitamin water and you and and etc you know what i'm saying it was basic right anybody remember this i'm not the only old person right thank you i see one hand in the back now the variety is is almost frightening if i want to get water i can have Water from 12 different companies with different shapes, with different flavors, some with carbonation, some without, some from overseas, some from here in the United States, some that's tap water, some that's spring water, some that's filtered water, some that's purified water. Can you believe the choices for water? Could we have imagined in 1976 someday you'd actually go in and buy water? And, and what, what's happening now is the world's like a big drink machine. 
And there's every flavor and every company and all the packaging, right, appeals to our senses and we want to get what's best. But there is only one source of water that nourishes and satisfies spiritually. And it's the water that comes from the one who cares about us and whose eyes are on us. It is the water of God's grace and God's sufficiency. It's the living water of Jesus Christ. Is that what you're drinking? Is that what is feeding your soul every day? Are you being refreshed by His presence and strengthened by His Word and made more fruitful because you're yielded to His Holy Spirit? Your life and my life will show whether heaven's rain is pouring on us. Let me give an illustration. I'm done. We planted a tree about a month ago. And I'm sure it's my fault, but it's not growing well. And it's, the leaves started to die. I know it's been hot, but you get the point. Now, my neighbor has an awesome sprinkler system. And it happens to spray the part of our yard that touches his. And in the midst of the awful brown straw that is my front yard, there's this green area. And the green area surrounds the tree because his sprinkler comes over. And I look last night and all of a sudden the tree's green. There are signs of life that wouldn't have been there without the water. That's Deuteronomy 11.11. And I don't know about you this morning, but I want to be a servant of the Lord who drinks from the water of heaven. I want this church to be a church that drinks from the water of heaven, that we would be people that are not dry and lacking in fruit, but that we would be people who love the Lord and serve the Lord and that He is our Lord and that we are submitting ourselves to Him with all that we have. And when that happens, people will see light. They won't see dry and barren. They won't see a lack of fruit they will see our lives showing the abundance of the rain from heaven. What does your land look like this morning? What does your life look like? Let's bow our heads for a moment. And let me say that again as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. What does your life look like this morning? Is it dried up? Is it lacking in fruit? Is there a lack of abundance. You're saved. You're getting by. You're doing okay. But you know it's not what it's supposed to be. Listen, this is a challenge from the Lord this morning. It's a challenge to me. Are we bearing fruit? Is the fruit in abundance? Do we love the Lord? I mean, really love Him. Not just, yeah, I'm saved. Do you love Him? Is He your Lord? Are you submitted to His Word? Is it an argument with Him? Or is it, yes, Lord, I will do what you say. I will do what you ask. I will follow what you command. What is it? Only you and the Lord know that this morning. I want to encourage you just to take 30 seconds, one minute, to be honest with Him.
to confess what is not submitted to His Lordship. To ask Him to forgive you and cleanse you and bring the rain from heaven on your life. Father, we praise You that You are such a loving and gracious and merciful God. We cannot imagine what it would be like without You. And Lord, You've presented us with a challenge this morning. What You've required of us. And Lord, it's not easy. But when we trust you and we submit our hearts to you, Lord, those fruits are produced in our lives. Lord, I pray for anybody this morning who is dry. Whose heart is hardened, whose heart doesn't feel joy. Who's struggling against sin. Lord, break through that hardness this morning and may they bring that to you and confess it. And Lord, we know that you are faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess that. So Lord, do a fresh work in many lives this morning. The abundance of your rain pouring out on us. Father, for someone here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, that's never trusted you, maybe it's the first time they've ever heard the gospel, I pray this morning that they would have confidence that you have paid for their sins, and you are willing to forgive their sins when they trust in you. Lord, right now, do that work in somebody's heart if they are not saved. And Lord, remind us each day of just how wonderful and how great you are. Oh Lord, it shouldn't be hard for us to remember that. You have done it all. Jesus paid it all. You've given us your spirit to keep us on track, to keep us walking with you. Lord, give us a resistance against the world's values. Be our Lord and guide us every step of the way. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.